And as the men are waiting on you all, if you have your Bibles, would you open it up to the book of Ezra? The book of Ezra. Ezra is after Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Find Ezra, and in just a moment I'm going to be reading out of Ezra chapter 9. It will be on our board next to me here in just a moment. But we're continuing our series, our prayer series, all through the summer that we entitled Unceasing. We believe that prayer is a value. It needs to be restored and recovered in all of our lives. And uh, we're going to do our best to underscore this through the summer. I hope you found yourself or find yourself praying more all through the summer and you're getting that value reestablished in your life because we're learning what it means, each of us, to be an intercessor. How many of you know that <clears throat> we just aren't leaving the praying to those who feel like they're called to pray? You know, you have those who feel like intercession's kind of their thing, and we're glad for them. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that, that some may feel like they're especially called or, or anointed or gifted to pray. The fact of the matter is all of us are called at some level to pray. It's just like some are better at evangelizing, perhaps better at witnessing their faith, but yet all of us are asked to do those very things. And so uh, while we'll recognize those that are particularly skilled at it, we're learning, those of us who may not be, to get better at it, and that is why uh, we are doing this series. Last Sunday, uh, Bishop Pastor Fred Denham was with us, and he referenced Ezra in his message, and when he started speaking from Ezra, I was sitting right down there with my wife, and something just exploded in me when he began to teach out of Ezra. It's kind of an obscure book. As a matter of fact, I don't know. I started thinking, have I ever preached out of Ezra before? I've been a pastor for 35 years, and I started thinking, have I ever even preached out of Ezra before? And I'm not sure that I have. And so all of a sudden, this, this well sprung up in me as he began to talk just a little bit about Ezra, and I, I believe that was a burst from the Lord. In fact, here in a couple weeks, I'm going to be headed to Sioux City, Iowa. I have a good friend, Pastor Kerry Gordon, that pastors Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. And they're having a great conference, and I was invited to come and speak to them. And uh, whenever I go away and I'm invited to do that, I always want to go to that church and feel like I have something from the Lord. Isn't that a... It, it, wouldn't that be an important thing? I mean, if you were going to someone's church, they were flying you in, they were going to, to provide a blessing of some kind to you. I mean, you ought to bring something out of the oven. And uh, so I was just really praying about that. And as soon as that Ezra thing dropped in me, I said, I said there's a word here. So, so I have a feeling there's going to come several messages out of Ezra. I get, I get to try it on my people first. Is it okay if you're like my Petri dish or if you're my test tube? Is that okay? All right, we're going to do that. And if I don't get through everything today, if I run out of time, we will not spend an eternity here. I'll just pick it up next week, all right? So uh, you, can, you can probably count on the fact that I'll be back in Ezra next week. I've been reading, as of late, Metaxas, Eric Metaxas' book on Martin Luther, um, it was a great book, and the Lord reminded me as I was reading this biography of Martin Luther, the great reformer, 
that just like in the 16th century, here in the 21st century, we're in a season, I believe, of recovery. That, that the Lord is wanting his people to recover some things that are incredibly important. And I was asking the folks here Friday night, and, and I believe I've asked you previously with regards to this, if you feel like in your life there was anything that needed to be recovered. How many of you would just say one more time before the Lord, yeah, I think there's some things in my life I'd, I'd like to recover. There's some things that, that I know that I've either neglected or I've lost or have been stolen from me. And I believe it's the heart of the Lord for us to recover these things. And the fact of the matter is that as I was reading this biography on Luther, and this is a man that lived in 1517, he believed that God had called him to recover certain doctrines to the church that were incredibly important. Now, I understand to even suggest that I'm going to talk about some doctrine or theology today, everybody starts to check out. I understand why. Most of the time when we talk about these subjects, they're very boring, and usually those that present them can be equally as boring. But if you read the biography of Luther while he was restoring or recovering these important doctrines, that you didn't have to go see a man in order to be saved, but that you could really access God for yourself... And I've simplified the doctrine of justification by, by just saying it that way. I don't have to go see an earthly priest to be forgiven. I get to go before the very face of God myself. How many of you know that's significant? And it needed to be recovered in the 16th century. Now, I know, I know for us nowadays, we feel like we, we've been there, done that. All of us have the t-shirt to everything. We've heard about everything that could be taught but one of the things that struck me historically was that when, when he began to teach these lost, these lost understandings, when he began to help the people recover important truths from God, it wasn't just that they were doctrinally right. It wasn't that suddenly whatever paper they had, they got all their, their T's crossed, their I's dotted, they had their P's and Q's all set up, and so they had their doctrinal papers finally in order that they could shake before God and say, see, I'm doctrinally in order. It wasn't so much that as much as it was that for the first time in ordinary, everyday people's lives, when they began to recover the truth of God's word, and when they began to see the centrality of the scripture, their lives practically began to change. I don't know about you, but there are some real practical things in all of our lives that we would love to see God work on and change. I don't know about you, but maybe you've got some bills that need paid and you don't know how they're gonna get paid. How many of you would like to recover a little resource to get those paid? Maybe you'd like to recover a relationship that's been lost or a family member that's estranged. You'd like to get that recovered again. That's pretty important, don't you think? I don't know what the area of recovery may be. Maybe you had a position sometime in your life. You had a great job, and for whatever reasons, maybe you were laid off, maybe you were fired, maybe there was injustice, maybe, maybe something happened and there was confusion. I don't know, a thousand reasons, but you've never quite got back to that place again, and you'd like to see that recovered. That's pretty important to you, isn't it? Well, when all of this was happening in the 16th century, when people began to hear what he had to share, even though it seems like it's just this doctrinal stuff, it began to change the very way practically people 
we're living. In fact, many people don't realize, but from the years A.D. 500 to the year 1500, that's a thousand years, 500 to 1500. 1500 minus 500 is how many? A thousand. Imagine a thousand years. America has only been here, what, 250 some odd years? Imagine a thousand years. A thousand years they call the Dark Ages. Do you know why they call them the Dark Ages? It's because there was absolutely nothing significant or there was no change that was taking place in those 1,000 years. So from about the year A.D. 500 to the year A.D. 1500, everybody traveled the same way. Everybody lived predominantly the same way. There was, there was no great technological advances. Oh, there were some advances in how you make a sword and kill somebody. But everybody's still riding a horse. You're still on a cart with wooden wheels. Everything ostensibly had just sort of cemented for a thousand years, technologically and practically and lifestyle ways, everything had just cemented. And I don't know about you, but I like living in the dispensation of air conditioning. I like it in the wintertime when it gets cold, at least cold for us Charlestonians, and I can get heat. I like that. You know what I like? I like getting, I like Wally getting in a vehicle that I can rent when I go to an airport and I don't have to walk to my appointment. I can drive to my appointment. I like, praise God, we live in the dispensation of vehicles that we can fly across the country. Think about all the things, all the advances. How many of you know, what would we do Excuse me for just a second. What would we do? Whoever thought, some of you are as old as I am, who would have ever thought back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and people like me were just kids? Who would have thought we all would have needed a cell phone? I mean, can you believe my parents allowed me to actually, when I was 16, to drive around town without a phone? Because there was no phone. And I'll be honest with you, I can't imagine my daughter, who is now graduated from college, but I remember when she was 16, she better have her cell phone on when she left the house. See, this is what we're talking, these are just really practical things that all of us live with. Imagine, and, and I realize if I run out of time, I, I'll stop and we'll pick it up next week. But imagine a thousand years and nothing had changed. Now, I, I'm looking like at Shauna and Jamie, and I know you guys love horses. And maybe you would think it would be great to jump on a horse every day and ride around on horses, because that's the only way they got around. But, I, but I'll guarantee you this, that after you got done riding the horse, the rest of life would not have been great. No indoor plumbing. No, no, no. In fact, I won't even tell you about the type of plumbing they had in what they call the Dark Ages. You would go, ooh. There was, there was, there was, you know, you, you, could, you could create a fire, but there was no way to, you know, cool things down. I mean, this is what we're talking about, very practical things. Most of us would have had to be, uh, had to have been farmers farming for our daily sustenance. In other words, you couldn't go down to the market and just, just shop at Bilo, but I mean, you are literally having to farm for yourself whatever you're going to eat that day. I'm belaboring this point for this reason. When Luther came to the scene and he began to recover 
certain doctrines that right now we don't think are all that important or practical. Or we may say, well, they're important, but I don't know how practical they really are. And yeah, I can understand why a preacher probably needs to learn these things. But generally, we just need to stay real practical. Hear me when I'm saying this. What sprung what sprung the culture out of the Dark Ages for those 1,000 years was there was a man who ultimately birthed other men and women as well that received a revelation to recover some things from God that not only changed the way the church operated, but it changed the way the culture operated and it changed the way people's ordinary lives operated. You get, you get yourself right before God and it's amazing how your practical life will change. That's the point I'm making. There's some people that don't believe that. They don't believe they have to be right with God and that they'll rail and they'll fuss and they'll scream and they don't think it's important to be right before God in any way, shape, or form and they wonder why their life's falling apart. Just th These are connected. They're not disconnected. We say to ourselves, what connection does right doctrine have with practical life? Everything. The Bible says this, the way of the transgressor is hard. Do you understand that when we transgress what the Lord has said, life will be hard? That's Bible. Now, here's the good news. The good news is if we obey the voice of the Lord our God and are diligent to heed all of his commands in Deuteronomy 28, what does it say? It says that we will be the head and not the tail. We'll be above and not beneath. Though the enemy comes against us one way, he will scatter in seven ways. We will be blessed in our baskets and our barns. In fact, the writer says that the blessing will not only come upon us, but it will overtake us. <laughs> so see, that's why this is right, to understand God's ways. And, and, and all of this together fits in order to change our practical situation. Now, why is this important? It's because as the house of the Lord and as God's people go, so go our practical lives, and the culture. And that is exactly what is beginning to take place in the book of Ezra. Ezra is beginning to open the door up as to how in the world these Jews who have, who have been in this Babylonian captivity and now all of a sudden some favor has come to them to come back into their nation and come back into their land, how in the world are they going to recover that which they have lost then for only 70 years? And in order to finish the Luther story, I ought to tell you this, that as soon as Luther's understanding were received by the, by the greater population, all of a sudden you can watch it historically from 1517 to this very date, technological advances have... Have blown out the roof. Why is it? Because, because we, we, we began to connect the dots between being right before God and understanding that's how the blessing will begin to flow. That, that's why, that's why we, we contend for the soul of America. We contend for the soul of America because if America, America, I'm just speaking generally, thinks it's smart enough. America thinks it's rich enough, America thinks it's ingenious enough that it doesn't have to be right with God. Not realizing that we are as susceptible to going into a dark age as they were in the year 500. Ezra 
this book keeps a template before our eyes that begins to teach us what it means to restore or recover things that will help our life, bless our life, and are certainly a priority to the Lord. And so today, God willing, we'll get through some of it, I want to talk about recovery praying. Because in Ezra chapter 9, you're going to find a prayer that Ezra prays that is the beginning of what I call a recovery prayer. And we've been talking about this, haven't we? All different kinds of prayers in the Bible. And so let us, let us read Ezra chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me as we begin with verse 1. If not, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, just bear with me. It says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Now I'm going to explain. If I don't get to it, I will explain these verses before it's done. But, but the people of Israel have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. A lot of ites there, aren't there? For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So this is what Ezra is saying. He's saying the people are doing something that's problematic. And, and I will get back to, to why it was problematic for the Israelites to marry other people, not of their nation. Now, now we, we can't make instant application until you understand why that was a problem. God is not against you or me marrying somebody of a different race. God's not against that. My daughter is almost engaged to an African-American young man. So she's a white girl and a black man, and they're fixing to get engaged, and I believe it to be God's will. So hear me when I say this. I'm not dodging an issue. I'm simply saying you got to understand the reason God says you can't marry foreign, foreign people like this. There's a reason that we'll get to in just a moment. So when I heard this thing, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. He just can't believe he's what he's watching. And, and he already says the bigger problem isn't that the people are doing it, but the leaders are doing it. Did you see that? He said the leaders, the leaders are the primary transgressors. He's talking about people like me. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garments and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, and here he begins to pray, so let's take note because that's what we're learning. How do I pray? Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. See, all these are practical things, aren't they? And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a peg, 
in his holy place. I love that phrase. When I first read that phrase, I said to myself, what in the world is a peg in his holy place? What does that mean? This is basically what Ezra is saying. He's saying, he's saying, Lord, you've given us a nail in the wall to hang some truth on, to hang our hat on. A peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. Now listen. To revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. We want to talk a little bit about recovery praying. Is there anyone transparent enough today to say, I need to recover some things in my life? You need to recover your joy, your hope, your peace, your influence, your impact, your health, your job, your position. Our nation needs recovery. Communities need recovery on multiple levels. Ezra understands this. Ezra begins to pray about this and he begins to lay the template down to help us pray in this matter. Now let's talk a little bit about what's going on in particular with Ezra. Some of you will remember, if you've had some teaching in your life, you'll remember that the Israelites were, were moving along. They had built a temple. Solomon had built one of the most elaborate, uh, over-the-top, ostentatious temples they'd ever seen. In modern uh, economic terms, the temple that Solomon built was probably worth billions. Billions of dollars is probably what that temple cost, inlaid with gold, uh, jewels, the finest of materials. Anybody that ever looks at me and thinks that the church has to be poor has never read the Bible. I am telling you, God directed David and then Solomon to build a temple, and it was crazy, elaborate, and uh, just... Uh, just immaculate, it, it was crazy. Now, here's the deal. The reason God's not against, uh, you know, nice things is because God doesn't have a money problem. God has no financial issues. So when he looks at all of that, he goes, yeah, that's good. And, and because we have issues of finance, we look at things and we always ask ourselves, is that wasteful? Could we have spent it better? Was it stewarded right? And I get it, and there's, and there's scriptures to point that we need to be good stewards, so I'm not dismissing it, but I'm here to say to you that the temple was God's house, and God has no financial issues. And so it was built in order to demonstrate his great awesomeness. And, and, and so Israel had this wonderful temple, and it was, it was built and created in such a way that God affirmed it. If you'll recall, at Solomon's dedication ceremony, the presence of the Lord came to the temple in such power when the sacrifices were offered that the Bible said the priests were not able to stand. In other words, this is what I call it, it was an Old Testament picture of people literally getting slain in the spirit. The glory of God, the Shekinah, the Kabod and the Hebrew came and fell upon those priests in such, in such measure that they literally hit the ground and they could not get up. Now, I would say that's a pretty awesome service when God's presence shows up 
to that extent or to that degree. And, and the Lord moved and worked through that temple. He was pleased with that temple and all that took place. And so the Israelites, you know, they did something great with that temple. But how many of you know time, time moves on? And, and some centuries went by, and we know the story how both kingdoms eventually after Solomon had split under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. I call them the Boam boys. One went and took the northern, some northern tribes, ten, and, and others took the southern tribes, which were two, and it, and it, and it split into two kingdoms. And uh, as best as, as we can figure it out, uh, uh, the northern kingdom fell first because it had more wicked kings along the way than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer. But the fact of the matter is there came a moment when Finally, the Babylonians, or, the, or the, actually they were Neo-Babylonians, Assyrians, they came and they carted Israel away. And they took him into captivity. And Jeremiah had prophesied of this day. Jeremiah said, there's coming a day because of your sins and because you're not worshiping anymore after these centuries like you ought. There's going to come a day you'll be plundered, you'll be broken, you'll be carried away. But Jeremiah gave him a word of hope. He said, it'll only be for 70 years. And so they're carted away. Everything's carted away over into what now is known as Iraq. It was known as Persia in those days. And so the Jews spent 70 years. They were having kids. They were having to live. It wasn't a conducive environment. They were living in a Babylonian exile. Everything about their environment was, was hostile and and it was adverse to the things of God. So can you imagine having to live for 70 years in this hostile, adverse territory? But suddenly, God comes through and he fulfills his promise. And he moves on the heart of a king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus is stirred for some reason. In fact, the book of Ezra tells us that, that he was stirred up. 75 times in the scripture is that Hebrew word found that means stirred up. And numbers of them are found in not only the book of Ezra, but you kind of have to study several guys in this time period. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. And, and they too were contemporaries of Haggai and Zechariah. And so we know there are at least these four guys that are hanging out together during this time period where God is stirring up Cyrus, the Persian king, to release the Jews in order to go back to Israel, lo and behold, to reestablish their nation and their worship. Is that not incredible? And so uh, there's a first wave that goes back, led under Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel begins to lead the people back, and we think Ezra may have been tagging along on that one, but we aren't, we aren't totally sure, but we think maybe he was along. And like the first six chapters of Ezra are where we're finding Zerubbabel, who's basically a civic leader, trying to do some work with regards to the reestablishment of the house of the Lord. Now isn't that sad when it takes a civic leader and not the men and the women of God to get the house right? Boy, there's a preaching point right there. So Zerubbabel's working at it and, it, and it wasn't easy, and they had to press through some things. But then there was the second wave. You know, Cyrus had, had left the scene and Artaxerxes was there, that crazy name that we all see in Scripture. Artaxerxes was the king. And so Artaxerxes, because he was touched by Cyrus, he releases another 
tens of thousands of Jews in order to go back to Israel. And so now there's these two waves, and that's the wave that Ezra led, was coming back again. And that's why in chapter 9, we begin to see Ezra, that chapter 7 through 10, we begin to see Ezra coming back again in this amazing, powerful way. But the fact of the matter is, is that, is that they're wanting to recover the house of the Lord. Now, here's the reason why. It will never be right in Israel until it's right in the house of the Lord. It'll never be right for you until it's right in the house of God. Until your worship of God is put in order, it will never be right in other areas of your life. I realize you probably didn't want to go on a great, only, a, only an Old Testament history nerd like Pastor Baird likes going through all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that Ezra understood it, Zerubbabel understood it, uh, all of the civic leaders understood it, Nehemiah understood it, although his task was the wall and not the temple. But Haggai and Zechariah encouraged it along. And that's why God is sending now voices of recovery to try to get the church back, the American church where it needs to come. Listen, America will never change until the American church changes. Judgment, the Bible says, begins at the house of God. And so there's a judgment upon us as a whole. Now, we're doing our best, and I know there are lots of churches doing their best to try to be that recovery, but we've got to yield to the recovery if we're going to find the blessing of the Lord come upon our nation, our communities, and our own households again. Now, let me just give you a couple quick insights to recovery, all right? You want to write these down because if you want to recover in your life, I'm going to give you just a couple beginning insights that will help you understand the nature of God's recovery in your life, even in the house of the Lord. The first one is this. Recovery always comes in waves or stages. It always comes in waves or stages. Wouldn't it be wonderful if like God could just open the windows of heaven and everything you've lost just all of a sudden like a genie out of a bottle there was some smoke and it went and it's there would that not be cool you know you know that's what i unfortunately some of us kind of secretly believe that that's how it works i'm telling you that's not how it works Recovery almost always comes in waves or stages. In other words, there'll be a first stage of recovery. In other words, you'll, you'll, you'll see movement. You'll, see, you'll begin to get forward. You'll begin to apprehend some things. Now, they had to face this in Ezra's time too. Here's the question. If God allows a wave of recovery to come to you, will you continue to press forward in your worship and in your faithfulness and in your obedience, will you continue to press forward or will you camp at that first wave or will you just simply receive the wave and then say, see you later, Lord? It's amazing. People, people will get one wave of recovery. They'll get their jet ski and you'll never see them again on Sunday morning. One jet ski is all it takes. And they're gone never realizing that God's wanting to drop incredible resource on you, a lot of it for kingdom purpose. He's not, he's not against you using it in order for it to be a blessing in your life. He's not against these things, but the problem is he just lets you have a jet ski. One jet ski. 
and you lose your mind. Is it any wonder that he only sends it in waves? He says, my God, if I gave them a Corvette, what would they do with that? He wouldn't say, my God, he'd say, myself, what would they do with that? <laughs> it always comes in waves and stages. Because it, it, it'll encourage you, but the question is, it'll also test you. It will, also, it will also cause you to say, am I willing to pursue until I pursue to the end? Most of us are comfortable with relief. We want God to move to the point of relief. And once we feel relief, then we set back and we relax. Now, hear me, when you've been in an adverse situation, when you've been in hostile conditions, when your circumstances and environment have not been good, and maybe you've been in a season of, of impoverishment, maybe you've been in a season of hostility, maybe there's been some setbacks in your life. I understand, just to have a little relief is a great thing. But do you, you understand, you have to move through your relief in order to get to ultimately your promise. Most of the time, people stop at relief. They go just far enough. They will war just far enough. They will believe just far enough. They will walk just far enough to get their relief, and they will not go any further because they're just so happy they finally have some relief. Oh, I paid the Sears bill. That oh. God wants more than that. Okay? It always will come in waves or stages. The second thing of every recovery is that prayer is always a prominent feature. It says permanent, it should be permanent, but it's a prominent feature of the recovery. A prominent, even permanent feature of the recovery. Now this should be unsurprising, that, that God wants relationship, the Lord is wanting you to have a relationship, and, and prayer is one of the vital aspects of fostering, maintaining, that particular relationship. It's amazing how we talk about having a relationship with the Lord, but how far down the list oftentimes prayer is in our life when that's the very thing uh, that keeps that relationship going. So understand recovery means you're going to continue to pray even through the recovery. And that number three is this, there will be challenges to stop your recovery. There will always be some challenges that once recovery begins moving your direction, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see where we get today on this. But recovery begins to move your way. Is, are any of us surprised that the enemy or any of his minions that are in league with him would suddenly see recovery coming your direction? And what do you think they're going to do? They're going to go, oh my, we'll leave them alone. Or will they challenge that recovery realizing that if they can challenge it just a little bit, it will probably be enough to discourage at least most American Christians, because we're not very good at perseverance and pressing through. Uh, we're getting better. Hopefully we're getting better. But there will always be challenges in this regard. So I want to I go with this point for just a moment and talk about now some challenges to this recovery. There were challenges in the book of Ezra, and uh, it's what I want to deal with for just a moment. Uh, I, I've... As I've been studying this, and, and I'm kind of teaching this, as you can see, I'm not spending a lot of time in my notes. I'm just kind of talking about some of the things God was just kind of pouring into me when Bishop was speaking to us in the book of Ezra. But 
But whenever recovery shows up and whenever recovery begins coming, there's always convolutions or, or the enemy tries to twist some things in order to get us detoured, sidetracked, uh, in the bush, turned around, or whatever the case may be. There are always challenges to recovery. Do you remember in the book of Nehemiah when they were building the wall? In fact, Nehemiah and Ezra are really similar books. Nehemiah's working on the wall. Ezra's working on the temple. But they're similar in this regard, as you'll recall, that, that Nehemiah had those two famous characters. Remember? Sanballat and Tobiah. And they were the ones that showed up, and at first they were kind of nice, and then all of a sudden they got nasty. And they started challenging Nehemiah and the people and the work of it, and they did all kinds of things. They tried to demean it. They tried to, they, they tried to discourage him. They tried all sorts of ways to get them to stop building that wall. And I will talk about why that wall is important. And again, this is no political statement, but we're talking about walls these days in our country, and what the wall was for then is not exactly the same reason why the wall is being talked about today. There are some overlaps, but it's not totally overlapped. And we must understand, if we really want to make this spiritual, because people will always use the Bible to their own ends, we need to understand why the wall was important in that day in Israel. There was a reason beyond just protection from our enemies. That was a part of the reason, but that wasn't the whole reason. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But there were challenges to this recovery because before the wall even got built, the house of the Lord had to be rebuilt. We had to recover some things. So the first challenge that came, and this comes every time there's a recovery movement. Now, here we're making modern application. I believe God is sending voices in a recovery movement. I believe in America right now, in seed form, in nascent form, even here today, because I believe I'm, I'm a part of that, there is a call to recover some things back to the church. We have lost some things that we need to grab hold of again and reestablish again. And there are going to be modern day Ezra's and Nehemiah's and Haggai's and Zechariah's that are going to come to us and are going to look at us and tell us that we've got to find some old paths to walk in again. Not everything that's old is bad. Me for one. I'm not as young as I once was. I'm a little older. But I'm not a bad guy. So not everything that's old or getting old is necessarily wrong or bad. Yes, God does new things. He can do fresh things. We want him to do this. But we don't jettison everything we know uh, in order to somehow just run after that which seems new and exciting and jazzy and zippy and all the other things for. There are some, for instance, prayer is centuries, millennia old. Prayer is thousands of years. The practice of praying is thousands of years old. Can I suggest to you that you ought not get rid of it? Just because it's old? So we got to recover some things, but there's some challenges. Now, I'm going to use some big words. How many of you know you can come to church and you can learn? But there are four challenges that hit Ezra at different levels. And they're, and they're hitting us at different levels. And you find them all through Scripture. You find them in the New Testament in particular, in early church history, even today. The first one I put up here is mysticism. This is a challenge to recovery, or what, what we would better understand it to be hyper-spirituality. Now, hear me, it's great to be spiritual. 
How many of you know that I am a Pentecostal? I pray in tongues. I do. I believe God moves and heals today. I believe signs and wonders follow them that believe. We don't chase signs and wonders, but they should follow those that believe. The term for that is to be a continuationist. I believe that the works of the Holy Spirit continue. So I am a continuationist. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and well. All right? So as I say this, I'm saying this as somebody who believes in the present movings of God. I, I prophesy. My wife prophesies. We believe in words of knowledge. We believe in the manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that people can be slain in the Spirit. We believe that there are all sorts of experiences that can happen to the people of God, most often, almost without exception, though those experiences must be tied to the Word of God. In other words, God isn't going to do something with you or in you or for you that violates this book. The scripture. Now, again, the scripture doesn't contain everything God may speak to us. It doesn't tell me whether I'm to work at Target or Walmart. So I believe the Holy Spirit can lead me to get my next job. It does tell me, though, that I need to work. So if you tell me, God told me I don't have to work, I would look at you and say, that wasn't the Lord. That may have been a spirit, but that wasn't the Holy Spirit. All right? Or maybe you're at a place where you've earned so much or you've saved so much you don't have to work. That's a different story. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that if God speaks to you, it's within the context of what he has said in his word. The challenge to recovery is this. Mysticism in and of itself is not a bad word. In fact, there was a time this was a perfectly legitimate word. In fact, there was a time I could point to you in history where the mystics were actually the only ones that were calling the people of God back to being tied to the scripture and having a heartwarming, a fervent, vital faith in a living God. There was a day this was probably a pretty good word, but the problem is that it has now been convoluted to where we have people saying that God is telling them to do stuff or telling others to do stuff that aren't, is not based in the word of God, but it's based on something subjective that they've heard rather than objectively read. And here's the problem. When it doesn't happen, we blame God. And God, let me tell you, I, I mean, I, like I said, I, God's moved me to say things and share things. My wife shared some things today, but I listened very carefully, and she said some things, I believe, out of an anointing today. But as I listened, every word she said, she or I or any of us could go to the Word of God, and I could show you chapter and verse where what she said agreed with what this says. Are you following me? All right, this is important. Because if... You're going to recover if our nation is going to recover. Then we got to quit saying things like God told me or God said, and you're disobeying what it says in here. And then wondering why it doesn't shake out like we thought it should have shook out. It's because this is the standard. This, they call it the cannon. I, whenever I say cannon, people always think of the big gun that's out at the battery. No, it's not that kind of cannon, although it probably has, it can be analogous to that, but it's a cannon, I believe it's Latin, that means the rule or the standard. This is the standard by which we evaluate everything. Amen? 
So when God speaks to you, which I believe he can, if God gives you a dream, which I believe he gives dreams and he gives visions, I believe in all of these things. But you need to then go to the scripture and search the scriptures. I don't speak in tongues just because I chased after the gift of tongues. I speak in tongues because this word tells me it's available for me. There's a difference in how I just said that, is there not? Okay. Mysticism, hyper-spirituality. I believe in people being spiritual, sensitive to the Holy Spirit. This is what's so hard. A lot of the devil's counterfeits and convolutions are just simple twistings that get you far enough off track that it messes you up and it doesn't get you where you need to be. I've met people who are hyper-spiritual. God told me that I wasn't supposed to go to work today. I was just supposed to lay before him all day long. Well, okay, but when you don't get paid, don't be upset. Yeah, or if you get fired, don't blame God. If that's what he said to you, and then they say, well, pastor, you ought to counsel them. Listen, when people come to me, and they've come to me, and they, it's, this is all through 35 years, people have come to me, and they'll say these words, pastor, God told me this. And you know what my response is? Well, if God told you that, then who am I to argue with God? And then they get mad later, well, why didn't you tell me? Because I said, you weren't asking me, you were telling me that God told you. If you're asking me, now what do I think of that, I'll be happy to share with you some of my thoughts. And then you can weigh them, and then you can do with it what you want, because I don't want to control your life. Are you hearing me? If you say God told you, you're saying a fairly powerful thing right there. God told me. Well, okay, great. I believe sometimes God's told me things that seemed odd. But I've done my best in my life personally and even in church to make sure that within the context of this Bible, it sits on a sturdy foundation. But this is what messes people's recovery up. And it was messing their recovery up in Ezra's day. It was messing people up in Luther's day. I was reading that biography of Martin Luther and there was this group of prophets called the Schwarmer. Schwarmer, S-C-H-W-A-R-M-E, like warmer, schwarmer. And what were, they're just, they were prophets. And again, I believe in prophets. I believe they still exist. I believe I can function as one. But there was these prophets running around, and they were doing everything they could during this time of recovery to get people off in every which direction imaginable. And Luther had to contend with that. I'm telling you, if there's a recovery movement going on, there's going to be those that will come with a convoluted mysticism, which has to be addressed. Now, we'll get to that, and it looks like I'm going to have to wait till next time. But let me get through one more, okay? And then we'll pick it up next week from here. I'm giving you these big words because God's people should be bright and well-educated. The word is antinomianism, which means the rejection of the law. It's interesting. Even in Ezra's time, there was this struggle as to what would be recovered and how it would be recovered. And again, I'm going to get to the, the inter, international marriages that are taking place, because this is really fascinating once I can get there. But I, I, I'm going to need to spend a little time with it, I can see already. So y'all come back for part two. Will you come back for part two? But antinomianism is the rejection of the law. In other words, it's when we believe that Jesus really didn't come to fulfill the law, but he came to, to somehow release us from the law. Now, we have to be careful here because the law 
The law in the scripture will not save you. The law was impotent to save. You understand? We're going we're to parse something here that's very important. The law was impotent, powerless to save you. If the law could save, all the Jewish nation would have been saved. So the law, the law can't save. It's powerless to save. Jesus saves, but Jesus' salvation is not so you can thumb your nose at all the law. If that were true, then we would no longer have to consider the Ten Commandments as being valid in our life anymore. In other words, who's God to tell me I can't murder somebody? Who's God to tell me I have to honor my father and mother? <laughs> Jesus freed me from that stuff. Have you ever thought about that? Because there are people running around today. Sure they are. They're, they're in all various forms of sin and disobedience. They're in, they're in their sexual sins. They're in their, they're in their uh, relational sins. They're, they're in all kinds of sins. They, you know, they, they don't want to obey God in any way, shape, or form. I don't have to do what that says. It's the law. I don't have to do it. I've been freed from the law, which means what they're saying is I've been freed to do whatever I want to do. And that's not why Jesus died. Jesus, Jesus this, is, this is probably the best way I can put it, is this. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are set free from the slavery to sin and death. But you were reestablished as a slave to him. That's what the scripture says. That's what Paul said. He said, now I'm a slave to him. I'm a slave to his will. I'm a slave to his ways. I'm a slave in obedience. It's not that my taskmaster, in fact, Jesus is not a taskmaster. He's the greatest of all masters. He's the most benevolent master you will ever meet. But my heart is now, is now in service. In fact, the word in the Greek literally for slave and servant is exactly the same word. It's doulos, and it's exactly the same word. So I was released as a slave to my sins, but now I am a slave to life itself. Amen. Antinomianism means that I reject any aspect of the law. Now, this, this message today isn't about going through all the 649 laws that I could pull out of the Old Testament. In fact, most of the law we were freed from wasn't just the prescribed law within the Scripture, but you do understand that there was, I think, what it's called a mitzvah, which was a, really a commentary on the law by the Pharisees, and they created laws on top of God's law. And now you are free from man's law on top of God's law. Because that was never God's law to begin with. But what we're not free from is the fact that God had some things to say with regards to the way we circumscribe our life. Now, again, some laws are rendered absolutely gone. The cross changed, for instance, all the sacrificial system. We don't sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats anymore. Why? It's because the cross and Jesus became the perfect lamb that was sacrificed once and for all. So I don't have to keep sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats. And, and, and understanding what laws stay and what go, you have to sort of filter it through the cross to understand these to understand these things. And again, I am not suggesting uh, that we're saved by the law. We are not saved by the law. We're not saved by our own uh, works or, or, 
or self-generated excitement. We're not saved. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a free gift from God. Yes, it is. But we've not been freed from the moral expectations that God set down for his people. But whenever there's a recovery, the recovery gets twisted because there are those who say, I can be lawless now and God's okay with it. And I'm just here to tell you, as one pastor, that God's not okay with it. God's not okay with it. Now, there are going to be two more things, but I'm going to stop there today. And uh, we're going to wrap, but I'm going to bring part two about recovery praying next week. We'll do a little review, and then we'll come back and we'll talk again about some of these challenges. And then after we get through with the challenges, I want to talk about there are going to be four pillars that I will give you next Sunday, four pillars as to how we begin to recover. And it was in, I read that, remember he said in his prayer that you would revive us? Remember? That you would revive us, that you would repair the house of our God to rebuild its ruins and then to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So all of these things we're going to begin to talk about in order to get you positioned for a great recovery. Last Friday night, and I'm done. The Lord was speaking. My wife prophesied in an amazing, an amazing way. She just, she, God's anointing came and, and she went to another dimension. And after she was done, the Spirit of the Lord began to speak to me. I was just kind of kneeling right down there at the altars. And it was at that point that the word came forth, at least as we closed, that your environment is not the determinator of your destiny. How many of you know that's good news? That whatever environment you're in right now, it does not have the last say. Whatever challenge you're in right now, it is not the last say. It is not the last chapter. It is not the last thing God wants to do. We tend, we tend to get sucked into our environment to where we lose our hope and we can't see any further than the problem that's in front of us and, and the circumstances are just crashing on us. And, and, and so we just, we're discouraged and we just stop and, and we need to be reminded that our environment is not the last say. But hear me, while the environment is not the last say and God wants to turn the tables on your environment, it becomes, I believe it was, that it was the transport, your trouble is your transport to your destiny and destination. The Jews were in Babylon. The Jews came back in order to recover everything that had been lost. Everything was being thrown at them in order to shut down. And God gave them through this, the scribe Ezra, the pillars by which they could get recovered in their personal life, and in their national life. And I'm telling you, God wants to do that as well. Uh, I usually don't leave it hanging like that, but I guess this will be like one of those old serials that you used to go to the movie theater to watch, and you have to come back next week to find out whether Flash Gordon makes it out of Ming's grasp. Stand with me, will you?